Hello, and welcome to Human Voices, a podcast exploring stories from artists and filmmakers who are creating socially aware and relevant art. I'm Sean Kaufman, and I'm your host of today's episode. Today, we are joined by Maggie O'Day, an author and filmmaker whose environmental work is featured in the short documentary Keystone, an official selection of the North Dakota Environmental Rights Film Festival. Keystone examines the impact of the keystone species the American bison on the ecosystem of the American prairie and the damage created by the removal of the bison and introduction of alien species into the ecosystem. Maggie joins the conversation from Humboldt County, California. Thank you, Maggie. It's great to have you with us here today. Oh, uh, it's just my honor. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for this invitation opportunity. I really personally enjoyed watching Keystone and I thought maybe that might be a good place to start the conversation today. For our audiences who are listening via the podcast Human Voices who may not have had the opportunity to see your film, maybe just describe it a little bit for them and what the film is about. And Yes, so Keystone is really about the story of the plains because for a lot of us in the United States, the plains, it's kind of just this like place that people fly over when they're going coast to coast. And unless you've lived, I grew up in Iowa, unless you've lived in this landscape or had a reason to really connect with it, for a lot of people, it's it's almost like it doesn't exist. And what I find fascinating about this landscape is that, well, we could go on and on, but in this time is that we're actually missing out on a huge amount of abundance by not really, you know, introducing this keystone species that we focus on in the film, which is the American bison. And so my fascination with the bison started when I was young and it just kind of stayed with me. Just this, such a majestic animal. And it's almost like I could close my eyes and like see that I was like touching foreheads with this creature. And as I researched for a a book that I have coming out, I realized that in our economic system, our present economic system and our agricultural system, bison could be a huge source of abundance, not only for food, for biodiversity, but also what they do in the landscape actually brings the soil alive. And as we know, the soil has a huge potential to sequester carbon, which means to take carbon out of the atmosphere, which is what we are in a kind of, um, you know, 11th hour in terms of needing to find appropriate ways to carbon sequester. So that's the premise of the film is really looking at how are we utilizing natural resources and kind of creating a new framework for natural resources so that we're actually using the abundance of nature to create more food, not only for people, but also to enhance the biodiversity of this very precious, but often undervalued ecosystem. So that's really, in a nutshell, what this film is about, is really looking at for every place that the bison is adding to the environment, what we replace the bison with in our 
diet is is the cat is cows is cattle and i think that's probably because people who were colonizing were used to that as their food source and so when we introduce the cattle either in confined animal feeding operations or in grazing they have not evolved and adapted to this landscape so again like now we're using some of our most fertile soil which is in Iowa, this place where these glacier deposits happened tens of thousands of years ago, we're using this really fertile soil to grow food for for cows. And in that process, we're depleting topsoil, we're polluting the water system, we're creating higher cancer rates in these areas because of the pesticides and herbicides sprayed on this land. So all of this, and so it's like you look at it and at every level, the cattle industry becomes a bit of a sink. And and there's a bit of a caveat unless it's grass-fed beef, right? But it becomes this sink of energy, even down to how much the government subsidizes corn so that cattle ranchers can buy cheap corn to feed the cows. So it's like at every place the cattle is the sink, the bison do the opposite. West of the 100th meridian, right, in in the U.S., for some reason the rainfall drops off significantly. So that's like, you know, basically about the Missouri River, west of the Missouri River. And so it makes it so that it becomes a very delicate landscape because it's so arid. So the bison are actually kind of these gardeners of this landscape. They have evolved for, I guess, 2 million years in this, in this ecosystem. And they, even down to the shape of their hoofs, So the shape of a bison hoof is more spread out. And this makes it so when they run, they actually aerate the soil because the tip of their hoof is just digging into the soil, right? So it's helping to break it up. So now with a cow, they are actually made for wetter ecosystems. So they have a pointier hoof so that they can like get traction more in these wet surfaces. And so they actually act to compact this soil, right? So just looking at that, they're doing these opposite things. Now, another thing that's amazing that bison do is this behavior called wallowing. So they actually get on their backs and they move their backs in kind of a, an S shape. And because they're such massive beings on this dry earth, they actually create small divots in the plain. So now when the rain falls, they created these little garden beds, right? Now cows don't do that. It's not part of their behavior. So let's keep going. So now bison, they have that, that wooliness in their, in their front um, legs, right? So as they're walking through the plains, they're collecting seeds in that wool. And as they're walking, they're dispersing them right? And some of them are going into these garden beds that they've already created. So now they're helping to germinate these seeds. Cows don't have that. They don't have woolly front legs, right? Okay, let's keep going. So now this rain, this precious rain is landing, the seeds are germinating, and it's starting to break up the soil. 
Now, this is so significant because now the soil is able to retain more water. Now the soil is starting to come alive because on the fine hairs of these prairie plants are little um, bacteria and mycorrhiza and little organisms. And these are actually the most some of the most powerful carbon sequestering organisms, these really small, small organisms. And that's actually how most plants get their food is that these organisms actually digest it and then their byproduct goes into the plant anyway. So now the soil's getting looser and now we're actually helping the prairie dogs to be able to burrow into that soil because the soil's not as compacted. These prairie dog systems now actually allow for when the rain comes, now there's there's actual tunnels right through the earth. So you imagine the rain comes, that brings that water deeper into the earth. So now taller plants can get their water and and create more biodiversity. And all of these plants then end up creating a food source for pollinators, for butterflies, for bees, for um, songbirds. But the story continues. So now comes winter and you get massive snowfall in this area. And there, there's the, the pronghorn, the antelope right? Now the antelope have these fine heads that it's difficult for them to get down to the grass during the winter because of these deep snowfalls. But what do the bison have? They have massive fluffy heads, <laughs> basically a fluffy snow shovel <laughs> they, that they don't mind. They can just move that snow with these massive heads and then they can feed, but they open up these patches then for the pronghorn. So this is the story of how if we brought back this ecosystem and we brought back more of these bison, we would be enlivening this huge landmass in the United States. It's a beautiful story of, of connectedness. And I think your your film does a really nice job of, of, of going into depth about each of the, the different characters, as you said, that you've introduced uh, just now and talking about how they're all interconnected and dependent upon one another and the dangers that happen when you lose a particular part of that ecosystem. Your film spends a little bit of time talking about, and you actually called it the genocide of, of the bison in response to uh, the wars against Native Americans when the colonizers landed uh, in this prairie initially. I really enjoyed the connectedness of, of the film. I appreciated too the way you started the conversation. My youth, I grew up in Alaska, I grew up in Colorado, so we, there was always a mountain and, and lots of trees around where I lived. And once you got away from where I grew up in Colorado, you started to enter into the prairie. But it wasn't until I moved to Wyoming and North Dakota that I really appreciated the beauty and the subtleness of, of the prairie environment. And I think you're right, a lot of people kind of look over it. Yeah, I agree. because. You know, you see so many environmental films about these places that on the big screen or on the screen have so much color, like saturated color. And, you know, I live now in Northern California in Humboldt, one of these beautiful, rare, rare ecosystems on the planet. And 
there's so much intensity in the landscape and it can be a bit more challenging to find beauty in the subtle nature, in the subtleness and of the almost continuous flow, right? Like I think of the beauty of the wind pushing against grass in the prairie, right? But it's a very subtle Zen-like kind of beauty. It's not this intense mountainous rock formations, you know? And so I think for the, the person who's a city dweller or something like that, it just, it takes a bit of a, of a fine tuning to the nuance more. It's, it's a, it's a much more delicate kind of feeling to it. And so it takes us, I think, a slowing down to really appreciate it. I grew up in, in this, I was very blessed to grow up in an Oak Woods outside of Des Moines, Iowa. And I spent a lot of my youth walking in this Oak Woods and playing in the stream and really connected on that deep level to nature. But as I grew up, um, in my teens, we moved to a golf course community, which was a completely different landscape for me. And so, and, and that was around when I got my driver's license. So I would drive these country roads in Iowa looking for these little places. I mean, and they were small where there was still native species and native landscape because they say only about 1% of Iowa is still native landscape. The rest of it is all monoculture corn. And there is a beauty to the corn. I'm not, I'm not negating. There's a beauty to those fields and rolling hills of corn, but it makes you think what, what would this landscape look like if there was this biodiversity, if these wildflowers and tall grasses and things were allowed to exist in a bit more of the landscape. Well, and I think you're, you're touching on it wonderfully. You know, you're right. It is beautiful to watch the corn blow in the wind, but it's not the natural landscape. And your film speaks to the ecological collapse of these landscapes. And while it's pretty, it's not necessarily what was intended uh, in some ways to be there. And it impacts all of the wildlife and nature that is intended to be there. It really significantly does. And, and now, especially with the issue of climate change upon us, I really see that this ecosystem and focusing more of our energy, attention, resources into regenerating and renewing this ecosystem has tremendous possibilities in terms of not only creating, see, this is the fascinating thing to me. It's like we could be creating a very reliable food source for people that's also has tremendous health benefits over traditional beef. It's very low in saturated fat and very high in omega-3s. The American bison. The American bison, yes. Yes, thank you. Um, so even from that, that benefit of looking at how can we, you know, there's, there's a huge movement in wild harvesting our food. How can we get more connected to the food that is native to where we are? 
and I'm not saying don't eat your strawberries, you know, or whatever. I'm, I think it's, it's not about the extremes. It's about what would happen if we could see, if we could repopulate the, the prairie with more bison and, and reduce our dependency upon cattle, we could actually free up a lot of that agricultural area in Iowa, Missouri, Minnesota, part of the Dakotas where there is enough rainfall so that we could be growing either organic food that again helps with all of this um, abundance of mycorrhiza in the soil and really protecting that soil. That's something we don't think about is that that soil is so rich in nutrients and we have depleted half of the topsoil in the last hundred years with industrial agriculture. And that's not something like, we don't know when the next glacier is coming through. It's not like, you Does know, so, anytime soon, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, really looking at how can we restructure our agricultural systems so that we're maximizing the abundance. And again, you know, native indigenous people had that flow with them right? They knew how to work with the native species, um, especially in Hawaii, where I lived for a time. They were very conscious of natural um, resource management. And they actually had a system um, called Ahupua'as. And Ahupua'as were that they would take like the island, imagine most islands are rounder-ish, right? And they would divide them into like slices of the pie. And so from up the mountain, Mauka, to the ocean, Makai, you had your resources. You had your trees for building. You had your places for agriculture, for your, your taro fields. You had your fish farms, right, down at the ocean. And so they actively would, would manage, like they would, you know, feed the fish sweet potatoes in their, um, in their fishing, right? So they create basically like a dam, a dam type wall structure so that the fish, some of the fish can get out, but the bigger ones stay in. And so then they have these fish to harvest from. So they would work with those systems, right? And so what I think is so powerful is that we have this opportunity. We have this like huge amount of area that we basically have kind of just written off as, as, as a barren landscape. Maggie, you are an author and this is your first film. Why did you decide to tackle this subject as your first film? And what was that experience like for you? Well, thanks for asking this. So, this is part of a case study within my book. And I obviously, bison are very visually, um, I want to say attractive or interesting, intriguing creatures. And because of that research of seeing how they really are this gardener and caretaker, and in some ways, like a guardian almost of the prairie, I see them as this like grandfather, grandmother figure. I just, I wanted to see it come alive in visually to have that visual impact and to 
visually show the beauty of this delicate landscape and say, you know, it's not the central coast of California, but a field of wildflowers has an equal level of beauty and of sacredness to the human, the human experience, to the planetary experience. And so I wanted to bring that alive for, for not only myself, but for, for others. And I think that we are looking for ways to counteract global warming. And I know like Elon Musk put out a contest about a month ago, giving away a hundred million dollars for technology to sequester carbon. And they now have these machines that can sequester carbon. And I'm sitting here thinking like, nature does it perfectly, people. Nature does it perfectly. We just have to go back and, and put back this ecosystem, um, the, you know, help to regenerate it before we ruined it and desecrated it. And, and it, imagine we'll have carbon sequestering for generations upon generations and we'll have food. You can't eat your machine, right? And, and what is the, what is the um, resources that go into making that machine, right? How much carbon is it taking to make your machine to suck up the carbon, right? So anyway, I, dig I digress, but so that was my desire in making this film and the process I'm going to say was a bit like jumping off a cliff, but into warm water, not cold water, because I knew that the bison wouldn't let me down. Right. I knew if I made a film with bison, if nothing else, there would be this majestic creature on the screen. And um, in the film, we were able to use some footage that's just like the close up of their eyes and their face. And so I kind of knew with the bison as the main character, I, at least I was going to land in some tropical water. <laughs> but I say it's like jumping off a cliff because it takes, so my process, if, if people are curious, my process was really to write the script. I had a couple editors who helped with the script. Then I actually narrated the script in a sound studio here. And then I basically went through paragraph, then I, you know, paragraph by paragraph, found the footage because I'm doing this on a relatively low budget, found the footage that I wanted to use and then went through and literally time stamped. So the, the footage and gave it to the editor that I worked with. And then there was, you know, some fine tuning and I think we're still going to do, we're working on one more kind of fine tuning cut, but that was, that was mostly the process was just, um, I think a lot of times with anything, just like with nature, it's like getting out of your own way is most of it, you know. You and your editor, uh, I just want to comment, uh, you know, you, you made some incredible choices with the footage that you used. It's a very beautiful film with a lot of really stunning moments and, and the narrative ties in very well with with the imagery that you 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 captured. I'm curious about your hopes for the project. So you've created the film, it's been released. 
people are watching it? What do you hope will come from audiences who see your film? Well, I hope, my first hope is that people realize when they're flying from LA to New York that what they are flying over has tremendous potential. And it looks like a bit of a fixer upper right now, maybe because we have removed. So the name of the movie is Keystone and and a Keystone is referring to a Keystone species. And this is how in many ecosystems, there is one or two animals. Okay. Every species is important, is critical, is necessary. But often there's one or two where if you remove this species, you actually see the ecosystem collapse. Like basically it just, it's necessary, right? So Keystone is in an arch. It's that middle piece, right? And without that middle piece, the arch falls, okay? So so that's the reference to Keystone. So my first hope is that people would recognize that this has tremendous potential. And my second hope is that for people who are um, vegan or vegetarian, that perhaps they would think of donating to a prairie reserve. They would think of, you know, donate to a prairie reserve where they can bring back um, American bison. And for people who consume red meat, my thought would be try bison, try bison one meal a week, two meals a week. Think about where your food is coming from. Think about your connection to that food. And I have a background in natural health. I won't go off on this too much, but you know, there's the nutritional value of the food, but there is an energetic component of the food. You're really taking in also the emotional quality of that food that you're eating. So, so start to think about food in that way. Like start to think I'm taking in the vibration of whatever it is I'm eating. What if I'm taking in a happier vibration with some, with an animal that was able to, to live a freer life than an animal in a stockyard, right? And think about, you know, many of us can feel like climate change is a massive global issue. And where is my part in that? And I would say, vote with your dollars, vote as a consumer. I think a lot of what is going to turn the ship around is us voting with our dollars, is the private sector. One of the themes that really came out in this year's uh, North Dakota Environmental Rights Film Festival was this idea of the seven generations. Uh, what does the future look like for uh, our, our great, 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 great to the seventh power uh, grandchildren? And I'm curious for you, as a mom, what does the seventh generation look like for you? What 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 are we leaving for our children? Well, you know, I'm going to try not to get too emotional. But um, about 10 years ago, I did get very emotional. And I realized that my place was in the coral reef in Kona. Because I had been scuba diving since I was 13. And I... I mean, secret between you and I and, and, and your listeners, I feel like I have some whale DNA in me because when I'm in the ocean, I feel like I'm myself for some reason. 
And so I decided I was going to move to Kona, which is the, the west side of the big island. And I was moving there to be, to swim in the coral reef. And this became my, you know, sacred, very sacred place. And I would go there and pray and, and chant over these reefs. And I, you know, had amazing spiritual experiences here. And I'm bringing this up because I moved from Kona for various reasons. And I returned there three years ago. And um, again, I'm going to try not to get too emotional, but about 60% of the reef was bleached because of global warming. Because coral is made up of many tiny polyps that have a very, a very specific temperature range. I haven't returned. I know that coral can actually rebound from being bleached, but it's the kind of situation where if the water temperature reaches those higher levels again, then that's it. That's it for that reef. And so to experience that firsthand of going to a place maybe three or four times a week to coming back three years later and basically not recognizing it, I honestly felt like I was in shock after visiting it. Like I couldn't ground. I didn't know what was going on. And that's part of this book I'm writing that's really around how do we reframe our economic system so that we are working with the systems of nature. And I basically reverse engineer capitalism. I'm just going to say this in a nutshell, back to realizing that it's based on the principles of Newtonian physics. So what happens if we, the, the problem with that is in a Newtonian world, everything is hard particles. And so you can extract resources and you don't have, you can conveniently not look at what is the effect that it has in the ecosystem. The problem with that is, is we know ecosystems is built all around relationships. So we have to put a value in our economic system around the relationships of those natural resources. So I, in that seven generations, I'm really trying to literally dedicate my life's work to how can we create a paradigm shift that is logical, sensible, practical, actionable, right? And so this film is part of that. It's like, look, this is something we can do. This isn't some technology we need to create. This isn't, you know, waiting for the alien spaceship to save us or whatever, you know, like this is something we can do. Right. And I am very much into practical, actionable steps, not waiting for some machine, you know, and I'm actually a big fan of Elon Musk because he has mostly released all of his patents for public access. So I, I have nothing bad to say about him, but I don't feel it is the time to wait for some technology. I think it's the time to connect into the power of this planet we live on, connect into the power it has to regenerate itself. And I think to step into assisting the planet in regeneration, instead of 
basically doing everything in our capacity to block its natural abundance. It's important because it requires us to completely rethink how we are doing things today. I think there are many horrible things that came from the pandemic, but one of the the more beautiful things that came from the world stopping for a few months was seeing how the earth in many ways rebounded from some of the damage we are continually doing to our landscape, to our waterscape, to our airscape on a daily basis. Yes. And I was talking with a friend and saying, I feel like maybe that pause, even though it's only been a year, it's almost like when they tell a smoker, like you stop smoking for a year, you add on like two at the end or whatever, five or however many it is. But it's like for every year you don't smoke, you exponentially get your back. So I thought maybe we added just a couple of years on, but I'm not saying that so you don't take action now. I'm just saying, I think anything that we can do to prolong our ability to take action, I'm, I guess what I'm, I'm, I didn't quite say that right. Like anything that we can do, every small action adds up because there's 7.8 billion of us, you know? So even switching your, you know, beef out for bison once a week has an impact. If everyone did that, that would have a global impact that would have a massive impact. And that would tell, tells the industry, this is where the demand is. This is where the demand's going, you know? On that note, what do you have in your project pile as your, your next endeavor? How are you continuing this, uh, this effort and these, these stories and this awareness that you're, you're bringing to communities around the world? Thank you for asking that, Sean. So I'm currently um, working on either getting a publisher or self-publishing a book, this book, um, that will be called A New Evolution, An Inclusive Economic System for an Abundant Planet. I'm also in the, we'll say, middle stages of setting up Uh, a hedge fund. Now, a hedge fund um, typically has been used to do what they call hedge your investments, which we won't get into, but it's normally an investment strategy. But the other thing that, that a hedge fund can be used for is that it can be a conglomerate of various investments. So whereas a mutual fund is perhaps just composed of stocks and bonds that are publicly traded, in a hedge fund, you can actually invest in publicly traded stocks and bonds, also private equity, also um, agricultural, you know, more private scale investments. And so I'm currently creating hedge funds. I've been taking classes, much to my dismay, through the Harvard Business School online in finance and in alternative investing and find that I actually quite love it. And this hedge fund is going to be based around the five elements of nature, based on the Taoist five elements. So we will be investing in things like in the water element. That looks like things like algae, 
mushroom technology. A lot of things we know like leather and things can be actually be made from mushroom fibers, right? Things like this. In the wood, it looks like investing in cannabis as an alternative fiber to traditional lumber, also sustainable forestry, bamboo. In the fire element, it's looking like solar energy, renewable energy. In the earth element, that's where we get into bison. Ostrich is also a very amazing protein source for humans. Also looking at organic agriculture. And then in the metal element, we look into more, um, how do we detoxify places that we have toxified basically? So there's ways to use what's called bioremediation. So there's certain um, plants and other technologies that we can use to actually extract. So I'm creating this fund and the, the, the intention of it is that we are actively investing in regenerating the earth. We're not even, we're not going for this is a neutral, environmentally neutral industry. No, we are actively investing in either things that would preserve an ecosystem in terms of of, um, hemp or bamboo, preserving lumber, or actively regenerating in terms of bison. And so my hope with this fund is that we can pool together our money our finance, because I really don't think that what we're seeing on a national and international level is going to happen at the rate we need it to. It's going to have to happen in the private sector and be hopefully supported by the public sector. But the thing is, we need to, I believe, also on a spiritual level, empower ourselves that we have an active role to play in this. And that is a beautiful thing. That's not a daunting thing. That's a like, everyone get a shovel, let's dig a garden kind of thing. And it's happening. That's the other thing. People are shifting their behaviors to, you know, be more in touch with their environment and their food. And so this is, this is my next, is my next endeavor. (laughs) Maggie, if individuals wanted to know more about your work or read a little bit more about this hedge fund that you're you're building, is there a place online that they can seek you out and and learn more about you, your book, and your future work? Yes. So right now, um, the hedge fund has a website and it's called um, cotyledonfund.com. So I will spell that for you. It's C-O-T-Y L-E-D-O-N fund.com. Cotyledon are the first two leaves that often appear after a seed has germinated. And these two leaves are very unique botanically because often they never replicate in, they have a completely different leaf structure than what the plant will look like down the line. And so I called it cotyledon because I believe that, again, we have this power and this possibility to regenerate the planet. And I see the cotyledon as the sign of regeneration and hope. Maggie, thank you so much for your film, Keystone. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to talk to you about your vision for the future and to hear about the work you're 
you're working on. And uh, we look forward to having you back once your book has been published and uh, your hedge fund is live, because I think this is just a fascinating idea. It's something that I hope many people engage in, because uh, I think it has the potential to change our, our future. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for this opportunity. Human Voices is brought to you by The Human Family, a North Dakota-based 501c3 promoting human rights through film and art. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and mixed by me, Sean Kaufman. Series artwork by Leah Marie Eklund, soundtrack by Peter McIsaac Music. Human Voices was co-created by The Human Family and Oscar de Leon of Chamber 6 Media. Programming from the human family is supported through the generosity of individuals like you. Learn more about and support the work of the human family by visiting human-family.org.